At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Okay, History of the Cold War fans. Big announcement about our donation map where we have our own little Cold War raging. West Germany has fallen to a socialist coup led by John Kay, uniting both East and West Germany into the greater German democratic state. Will the forces of democracy let Germany fall to the forces of communism unanswered? Important note, Germany will remain communist for the next six months. If you want to roll back communism in Germany, you'll have to beat $11 a month. If you make a one-time contribution, you can secure a state for three months. Will the forces of democracy rally? Or will further states fall to the communist sweep? So if you want to spread the forces of socialism or roll back the communist tide, go to our website, www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word, and donate on Patreon, and email us the nation that you want to change. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 17, The Soviet Atomic Bomb. In many political science courses, history class, or in current political rhetoric, most people assume that science and technology flourish best in democratic societies. But is this true? Third Reich was, in many fields, more technologically advanced than its democratic opponents. Moreover, for most of human history, science and technology had progressed under authoritarian regimes. The Soviet Union, although behind in many technological fields, was comparable to the West in many and more advanced in others. It was the Soviets who put the first satellite into space and the first man. Soviet technological innovation in the 1920s and 1930s was generally poor compared to other countries because the command economy placed obstacles in the way of innovation. However, some industries innovated better than others, such as heavy industry and defense. Because of these sectors were given the highest priority by the political leadership. As we spoke about in past episodes, Stalin, Molotov, and others in the Soviet leadership were intent on building up Soviet industry and defense so that they could defend themselves against other great powers. Growth in industry was also driven by events overseas. Domestically, state-owned businesses faced no competition. However, Soviet heavy industry was often compared to that of the West. The great Soviet steel town or mill of Mitogorsk was modeled after two of the most advanced steel-producing cities in the United States, Gary, Indiana, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Competition in the defense field was more direct. Uh, when a T-34 ran into a German Tiger tank, it was clear a better Soviet tank had to be developed. The same, of course, was the case with the atomic bomb. When the Americans dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was clear that the Soviets needed an atomic bomb as well. Most Russian scientists had welcomed the February 1917 revolution because they regarded the Tsarist regime as backward and a burden on education and science. 
Nevertheless, they were suspicious of the Bolsheviks, who they feared might destroy Russian science and culture. The communists regarded science and technology as progressive. Marxism was a scientific method of organizing society and understanding human history. Therefore, it followed that science and technology would be a major focus of the state. Nevertheless, in practice, it was much different. Most of the party leadership, like Lenin, Stalin, Molotov, and Beria, had no scientific background. The regime also defined what was and what was not science, despite its clear ignorance on many scientific matters. The destruction of genetics in the Soviet Union was a clear example of this. Therefore, scientific and technological development in the Soviet Union was strongly influenced by ideology, institutional politics, and the political character of the regime. The 1920s represented a honeymoon of sorts between the regime and science. New laboratories and facilities were built for the scientific community. Moreover, Soviet scientists were allowed correspondence with their colleagues around the world and could travel extensively to other universities overseas. The 1930s, however, were difficult times. The regime wanted scientists to contribute more to industrialization, but the economic system made it difficult to introduce new technologies, and Stalinist repression had curtailed their travel abroad and contact with other scientists. Despite its esoteric nature, research into the radioactivity became popular and captured the world's popular imagination. Radioactive elements had potential use in research, medicine, and as a source of immense energy. By the 1930s, the Soviets had four laboratories and about 30 research scientists working on nuclear physics. Everyone knew that there were vast amounts of energy that were locked up inside the atom, but no one knew how or if this immense energy could be released and harnessed, but most Soviet scientists, though, were skeptical about the prospects of utilizing nuclear power. The first person to see the potential of a nuclear energy as a weapon was Leo Szilard a Hungarian physicist who had moved to Britain in 1933. Szilard re realized that a fusion chain reaction would cause a huge release of energy and hence a huge explosion. Months before the start of World War II, the British Imperial College brought this to the attention of the government, warning of the possibility of a Germany building an atomic bomb and the need to stop Germany from obtaining uranium. British suspicions were correct. German scientists had alerted their own government to the idea of building an atomic bomb in April 1939. In the United States, which was still at peace, Szilard convinced Albert Einstein to write FDR in August, warning him of the danger of a German atomic bomb. In response to the letter, Roosevelt est established a government committee on uranium in October. Soviet scientists, in contrast, didn't warn their government to the danger of a German atomic bomb until the summer of 1940. However, there had been far less fear of war between the Soviet Union and the Third Reich after the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact in August 1939. Despite these warnings and fear in the scientific community, there was no full-scale project underway anywhere in the world to develop atomic weapons. This changed, however, in March 1940, when research scientists at the University of Birmingham published a paper on the construction of a superbomb based on nu a nuclear chain reaction in uranium. The Germans as well began to speed up their research by converting a large part of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physics to research on uranium. By late 1940, there was growing awareness among Soviet scientists of the possible military importance of nuclear fission. The situation had changed since earlier in the year. France, the Low Countries, and Norway had fallen to Germany, and it was doubtful how much longer Britain would hold out. The Red Army, in contrast, had fared poorly in the Winter War against Finland. With France out of the picture and Britain on her knees, the Soviet Union would have to face any German future threat by herself. 
Moreover, by the late summer of 1940, the effects of the war on nuclear research were becoming evident to Soviet scientists as they realized their foreign counterparts had virtually stopped publishing their latest research on nuclear fission. With the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, most Soviet scientists abandoned their research on nuclear fission to focus on the war effort. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. I also want to do a shout out again to John Kay for supporting the show. We appreciate the support. Christmas is around the corner, and if you're looking for a gift for a friend or loved one who's into history, I would recommend picking up the book American Colossus by H.W. Brands. It's a great book about the rise of America as an industrial power in the late 19th century. Brands takes a very interesting and compelling look at this period from a different perspective, which I would recommend checking out. If you purchase the book through the website, it helps the podcast and doesn't cost you anything additionally. In other show news, we've had a lot of positive feedback about our last episode on the KGB. If you enjoyed that show and want to learn more, I would recommend checking out uh, another podcast, Eastern Borders, which has an episode about the KGB and Soviet punishment. Kristofs examines the Soviet Union on a deeper cultural and societal level uh, than our show here, and I think it actually complements our show very nicely. So if you want to check out our book or a selection or donate, uh, the website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. We greatly appreciate your support and helping to keep this show going. Now back to the show. In America in 1941, while the Soviets abandoned their nuclear research, Roosevelt gave the green light to speed up American efforts to build the atomic bomb. He also wrote Churchill to ask that the American and British projects adjoin to further speed up the development of the bomb. The British government, knowing that they were ahead of the Americans, responded coolly to this request and proposed only informal collaboration. The U.S. pursued nuclear research with great urgency and soon overcame the British lead. Once they were ahead, the Americans felt no need in sharing their information, and what limited cooperation there had been broke down. In August 1943, Roosevelt and Churchill came to an agreement whereby Britain would participate in the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project required construction on a huge scale. The project was placed under the command of the Army with General Leslie Groves in charge. The United States pursued both the plutonium and the uranium-235 routes to the bomb. Both uranium-235 and plutonium are fissionable materials that can be used to create the chain reaction to create a nuclear explosion. The physicist Enrico Fermi built the first experimental nuclear reactor at the University of Chicago in December 1942, which began to produce the first plutonium. A later chemical plant was built in Hanford, Washington, to separate the ir irradiated uranium from the plutonium. Four different types of isotope, isotope separation were investigated, uh, gaseous diffusion, electromagnetic separation, thermal diffusion, and centrifuge method. A huge gaseous diffusion plant was built at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, with additional electromagnetic and thermal diffusion separation plants built nearby. The centrifuge method was not used for production. The plutonium and uranium-235 bombs were designed and fabricated at Los Alamos Laboratory, New Mexico, which was set up in the first months of 1943. The British and American projects were driven primarily from the fear that Germany would build an atomic bomb and use it against the Allies. 
But the German atomic project remained fragmented as Germany did not embark on an all-out effort to build an atomic bomb like the United States. The head of the German atomic bomb project, Werner von Heisenberg, told the German high command and Albert Speer, head of German armaments, that the bomb would take long, too long to build to influence the outcome of the war. This might sound odd in retrospect, but Germany had expected to fight a short war of between three to five years tops. If you remember from the German perspective, it appeared that they were on the edge of victory from 1940 to 1943. It's true that the Germans had suffered setbacks at the Battle of Britain in the fall of 1940 and in the winter of 1941 against the Soviets, but it appeared as if the war was still going in their favor. It wasn't until 1943, with the defeats at Stalingrad, Kursk, the destruction of the Africa Corps, and the Allied invasion of Italy, that the war started to appear to be going against Germany. The British and Americans, in contrast, planned on waging a long war of between 7 to 10 years. So from that perspective, building an atomic bomb, which was estimated to take from 2 to 5 years, makes much more sense, especially as the Allies in 1941 did not believe they could defeat the Germans in the next two and a half years. The Soviets, on the other hand, had had known through their spies that the British had decided to build an atomic bomb and that they estimated that it would take between two to five years. But this information had very little effect on Soviet policy. The Soviets were much more worried about the survival of the regime over the next six months as the Germans were advancing towards Moscow versus theoretical weapons that would be ready in 1944 or 1945. Nevertheless, Soviet scientists also became afraid of of a German bomb, uh, as well writing to Stalin personally about these fears. They told Stalin that there was the possibility of failure and that the Soviet nuclear research might lead to little in the way of a tangible result, costing an estimated 20 to 100 million rubles, but the risk of doing nothing was greater. Stalin actually agreed and made the decision to restart the Soviet nuclear research, which finally got underway in early 1943. The Soviet Academy of Science issued a secret order making Igor Kurchakov head of the program and setting up a secret laboratory, number two, to head up building the bomb. However, Soviet scientists faced several theoretical and physical challenges in building an atomic bomb. Very little research was done on isotope separation during the war. Whereas physically they lacked uranium, graphite, heavy water, and scientific equipment, they had very small quantities of uranium and building a bomb would require between 50 to 100 metric tons of uranium. They had only one uranium mine in Central Asia, but it only produced 10 metric tons of uranium a year, and at that rate it would take between 5 to 10 years to produce an atomic bomb. By the end of 1943, the Soviet government sent a request through Lend-Lease to the American government. If you remember, Lend-Lease was the American program that lent arms and supplies to to its allies during World War II. The Soviets requested 100 kilograms of uranium. General Groves approved the request for fear that refusing might alert the Soviets to the fact that the Americans were building an atomic bomb. A later request for eight additional tons of uranium, though, was turned down. However, Soviet requests for 1,100 grams of heavy water were granted. It's not clear if these materials were used in the Soviet atomic bomb program, though. By 1945, the Soviets still had small quantities of uranium, much of which had been confiscated in Germany. It is possible that the Soviets acquired these resources to produce steel alloys for arms and not for their atomic project. The Americans, however, did assist indirectly more when it came to the theoretical challenges of producing the atomic bomb. By 1945, Soviet intelligence had a clear picture of the Manhattan Project, 
From this espionage, they knew the process by which to build the bomb, the necessary quantities of fissionable material, and the design of the bomb, of which there were two designs, the gun assembly and the implosion, and that the Americans were expected to test the weapons uh, over the next couple of months. The Soviet conquest of Eastern Europe would help with the physical and industrial challenges of building the bomb as well. By the end of March, the Czechoslovakian government in exile under Edvard Bernays signed a secret treaty with the Soviet Union, giving them exclusive rights to mine uranium in Czechoslovakia. Before World War II, these mines had produced about 20 metric tons of uranium a year. The Bernays government was probably unaware of the value of these mines and had agreed to also surrender all existing uh, Czech stocks of uranium to the Soviets. The Soviets were to pay the Czechs a price equal to the mining ore, plus a 10% profit. This low price would later be a source of resentment between the Czechs and the Soviets. Many Soviet scientists hoped that they could learn even more about atomic energy from their conquest of Germany, yet they were disappointed. The Germans were far behind the Western Allies and even the Soviets in producing an atomic bomb. Moreover, the German nuclear scientists had, like Otto Hahn and Heisenberg, had fled to the Allies. However, the Soviets did locate some German uranium stocks. They tracked down over 100 metric tons of uranium that the Germans had hidden away. The U.S. later estimated that the Soviets had obtained between 240 and 340 tons of uranium from Germany and Czechoslovakia at the end of the war. The United States and Britain did try and prevent the Soviets from achieving any progress in their nuclear program from conquering eastern Germany, though. The U.S. Air Force had bombed a German plant north of Berlin that had manufactured uranium metals as they wanted to deny the Soviets access to the equipment in the plant, which fell in their zone of occupation. In April 1945, Groves also arranged for the removal of 1,200 tons of uranium from salt mines near Stressford, which fell within the Soviet, uh, Soviet zone of occupation again. However, the Soviets soon discovered new deposits of uranium located within East Germany, more valuable than those located in Czechoslovakia. The new deposits were in southwest Saxony. The uranium had not been mined, and no one knew how rich the deposits were until after the war. The U.S. and Britain also began to buy up all the available uranium on the world market for the Manhattan Project and to deny the Soviets the bomb. During 1945, the U.S. signed agreements with Belgium, Brazil, and the Netherlands to prevent supplies of uranium and thorium, another radioactive element which can be made into uranium-233, which is fissionable, from falling into the hands of other countries. Sweden, the other supplier of uranium, also agreed not to export uranium. At this point, the U.S. and Britain indirectly controlled 97% of the world's uranium output and 65% of the world's thorium supply. Despite Soviet intelligence that said the Americans were close to developing the bomb, Stalin, Beria, and Molotov seemed to have shown little urgency in regards to the Soviet efforts. We don't know for sure, but we can surmise three reasons for this. One, all three men had no scientific background, so they probably didn't understand much of the reports flowing back from London and Washington. Second, given their paranoia, they were probably skeptical of much of what their scientists were telling them, and they had no way of verifying what they told them was true. Finally, with the discovery that German, the Germans had been so far behind in building that bomb, they probably didn't believe it was feasible. 
Since the early 20th century, Germany had been arguably the most technologically advanced society in the world, developing everything from radio waves, long-range rockets, chemical weapons, and jet planes. So if nuclear weapons seemed like a goose chase to the Germans, it probably was. At 5.30 a.m. on July 16, 1945, the Americans, though, achieved the impossible and split the atom, detonating the first atomic bomb in the desert of New Mexico. This was a plutonium bomb, which employed the complex implosion method. The simpler gun-assembly uranium-235 bomb was judged to not to need to be tested before it was used. Stalin had been informed at Potsdam by Truman that the United States had a new superweapon of immense destruction. Stalin reacted to the news coldly, congratulating Truman and suggesting he put it to good use against the Japanese. What Stalin really thought, we can only guess, although he knew more about the bomb than Truman in many respects, given the efforts of the NKVD. Whatever Stalin may have understood at Potsdam, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August demonstrated to the world the power of the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb detonated over Hiroshima was the uranium-235 bullet bomb, codenamed Little Boy. Its blast was the equivalent of 13 kilotons. The effect was devastating. Virtually everything within a radius of 500 meters was incinerated. Buildings as far away as three kilometers were set ablaze. Death was instantaneous for some. For others, it was much slower. By the end of the year, 145,000 people are estimated to have died. Five years later, the number of deaths resulting from the bomb reached 200,000 because of radiation. Tokyo's initial reaction to the bombing uh, of Hiroshima was confusion. It was not until the following day that it became clear that a single bomb had destroyed the entire city. When Truman announced that an atomic bomb had been dropped, the Japanese dismissed the claim as propaganda. Not until August the 10th, the day after the bombing of Nagasaki, did Japanese scientists confirm that the United States had indeed destroyed Hiroshima with an atomic bomb. Japan's problems were compounded when the Soviets entered the war by invading Japanese-controlled China with one and a half million men quickly overcoming the Japanese. The Soviets also invaded the Kuril Islands as well during this time to further strengthen their position in the Far East. On August the 9th, the Americans dropped their plutonium implosion bomb, codenamed Fat Man, over Nagasaki. The explosion yield was 21 kilotons. The effects were dreadful. By the end of the year, 70,000 people are estimated to have died. When the news reached Tokyo about the destruction of Nagasaki, a better debate broke out between the peace camp and the military and the government. The peace party wanted to surrender, with, only, with the only condition being the continued reign of the emperor. The military, however, wanted to spare Japan from the humiliation of occupation and the loss of their empire in Asia and argued for continued resistance. The emperor took the unprecedented act and sided with the peace movement. On August the 15th, Emperor Hirohito spoke to his people for the first time over radio telling them that they must endure the unendurable and that the war had turned against Japan's favor. On August the 16th, the imperial headquarters ordered Japanese forces to lay down their arms and surrender. The atomic bomb, like the German invasion of 1941, caught Stalin and much of the Soviet leadership off guard, despite warnings from Soviet intelligence. Hiroshima was not as immediately threatening as the German attack in 1941, but its consequences for the Soviet Union were potentially devastating. From the Soviet perspective, the Americans had partially used the atomic bomb to bring the war to, end, to an end quickly, strengthening the American diplomatic position. 
By not allowing the war to drag out until 1946 or 1947, it denied the Soviets the opportunity to invade northern Japan and to install a socialist state there. Moreover, Stalin believed that the atomic bomb would make the Americans more aggressive in their approach to foreign affairs. In Stalin's eyes, the atomic bomb had fundamentally upset the balance of power in Europe. This, coupled with the massive Soviet losses in World War II, put him in a much weaker position via the United States. Instinctually, Stalin decided to play hardball since he believed any show of weakness would be invite a pressure from the, the Allies who had, he believed, wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. Moreover, he believed that he had to push hard to extract the best possible peace deal from the Allies, which would last 10 to 20 years before the next Great War. More importantly, Stalin viewed the world through the Marxist-Leninist belief of class struggle. He believed that it would be only a matter of time until the capitalists plunged the world into another bloody struggle. This may sound like paranoia, but from Stalin's perspective, he remembered uh, the American and British occupation of Murmansk and Vladivostok in 1918. Stalin had also been brutally and unexpectedly betrayed by his last ally, Hitler, as well. He had also intercepted British messages to British Field Marshal Montgomery to store captured German weapons for a, for a possible future war with Russia. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that a man who had experienced war most of his adult life would be skeptical of a lasting peace. The United States had achieved an unprecedented technological advantage over, over the other great powers, and this coupled with its immense economic power and the rest of the world being so badly damaged from the Second World War put the U.S. into a near-hegemonic position in the world. The Americans realized that their monopoly wouldn't last forever, though, and they needed to take advantage of this window of time that they did have to slow down the spread of the bomb as much as possible. In 1946, the U.N. established an Atomic Energy Commission. The commission would make recommendations on the exchange of scientific information uh, on, on the control of atomic energy for peaceful purposes. The U.S. insisted that states that contravened the agreement should be punished and that the right of veto, of the right of veto possessed by permanent members of the Security Council should not protect those who violated the agreement. The Soviets, in contrast, proposed an international convention banning the stockpiling and use of atomic weapons. The U.S. rejected this proposal, not trusting inspectors as a reliable method, and instead called for the creation of a powerful international agency to enforce compliance. Essentially, the Soviets wanted the Americans to ban the production of atomic weapons before the agreement had been made for policing them. The U.S., for its part, wanted the Soviets to forego the development of the atomic bomb and accept the creation of a powerful international agency before the U.S. surrendered its bombs. Basically, both sides wanted the other to take the risk in trusting. The U.S. didn't help its efforts at the U.N. by detonating two atomic bombs on Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands in Ju July 1946, which the Soviets took as a sign of intimidation from the U.S. Despite the U.S. failure at the U.N. from legally stopping the Soviets from acquiring an atomic weapon, the U.S. assumed they had some time before the Soviets could build a bomb. General Groves told Congress that the Soviets would need 20 years to build the, the bomb, given their scientific and technological backwardness, in addition to their lack of uranium. A panel of industrialists, however, said that it would take between 5 to 10 years for the Soviets to build the bomb. Therefore, the United States believed that its nuclear monopoly would last for between 7 to 10 years. Stalin now took immediate steps to move the Soviet atomic bomb project to the top of Soviet priorities. 
In the middle of August, he created a special committee to direct the development of the bomb led by Beria, head of the NKGB. Stalin wanted to restore the balance of power by building a Soviet bomb as quickly as possible. The managers of this project still face the issues around the shortage of uranium, the lack of separation plants, as well as the need to build a nuclear reactor uh, for plutonium production. All of this would require considerable planning and production on a massive scale. Kucherkov and other lead scientists were summoned to NKGB headquarters at the Lubyanka to explain what the atomic bomb was and what the Soviet Union needed to do to build one. The one thing the Soviets did have was a great deal of information about the Manhattan Project and Soviet technical decisions were strongly influenced by what the Americans had done. Stalin wanted a bomb as soon as possible. It was therefore logical to use the American design versus inventing a new method. However, only a few people knew of the intelligence material. Apart from two men, the scientists and engineers who built the bomb did not know they were producing a copy of the American bomb. The United States had spent about $2 billion to build the atomic bomb, or about $150 billion in 2016 dollars. The bomb could cost the Soviets, would cost the Soviets nearly 30 billion rubles to build. It should be remembered, though, that, the, that economically and technologically, the Soviet Union was far weaker than the United States and had suffered heavily from World War II. The western half of Russia had been devastated. Cities and towns were destroyed. Farms and villages were burnt to the ground with their inhabitants dead or displaced. Twenty-five million Soviets were homeless after the war. One U.S. security report estimated Soviet losses at 675 billion rubles, surpassing the entire national wealth of Great Britain. Later Soviet calculations estimated the damage at 2.6 trillion rubles. Moreover, the Soviet Union had suffered 26.6 million deaths, both civilian and military, which was compounded by 30 million deaths from Stalin's purges and forced collectivizations in the 1920s and 1930s. The Soviet Union also faced renewed famine in 1946-1947 as a result of drought, and Stalin also raised taxes on farmers to continue his policy of heavy industrialization. It's estimated that an additional 1.5 million Soviets starved to death during this period. Furthermore, besides the atomic bomb project, the Soviets were pouring resources into radar, rocketry, and jet propulsion projects that required billions of more rubles. These projects were all centered around the atomic project, though. The rockets were intended to be the future delivery devices for the atomic bomb. Radar development was in response to the American long-range atomic bomber fleet, as was jet propulsion, to build Soviet intercept jet fighters that could intercept American bombers once spotted by the radar. Nevertheless, the building of the atomic bomb was the kind of project that the Soviet command economy was ideally suited for. It was like large infrastructure projects of the 1930s, comparable to the steel city of Mitogrosk. It was a heroic undertaking for which the nation's resources could be mobilized, including the best scientists, engineers, managers, violent state apparatus, and its huge slave labor force with its associated industries in the gulag system. The project was strangely the best and worst combination of the Soviet system. The enthusiastic scientists and engineers had been produced by the expansion of science and education by the Soviet system in the 1920s and 1930s, whereas the millions of prisoners who probably hated their lives were arrested in the great purges and crackdowns of the Stalinist era of the late 1920s and 1930s. No good figures are available from the Soviet Union for the cost of the project or for the number of people involved. However, the CIA in the 1950s estimated that between 33,000 and 460,000 people worked on the project. 
Most of these 225,000 to 361,000 worked in the mines in the Soviet Union, with another 80 to 120,000 workers in the mines in Eastern Europe. 50 to 60,000 worked in construction, well, 20 to 30,000 in production, and 5 to 8,000 in research. The clear majority of these people were prisoners who worked in the mines or construction. Life for those in the mines and in construction we know very little. Lack of written sources from these workers and prisoners is no accident. Very few of these prisoners were ever released, even after completing their sentences, which can, we can attribute to the classified nature of their work. We can speculate, though, that it was horrible. We can assume from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's description of the Gulag system that conditions for those working on the atomic bomb project or in the uranium mines was very similar. Subsistence living conditions with brutal workloads beyond dangerous working conditions and torture. Those who did die during the Soviet atomic project were buried in communal graves or giant pits. We do know that the working conditions in East, the East German mines were horrible as the Soviets drafted workers because they couldn't find enough volunteers. The miners in Germany lived in camps surrounded by barbed wire and machine guns. Little attention was paid to their health or working conditions. Protective clothing was inadequate and miners contracted lung cancer. Unlike the workers, uh, Soviet scientists and engineers lived in relative comfort. They were paid high salaries, and their families did not experience the hardships of the rest of the country. They had a good supply of high-quality food and lived better than most of the, in the Soviet Union at that time. Despite this privilege, they were surrounded by secrecy and tight security. They could not speak to others about their work. Everything was to be written by hand, as typists were thought to be not to be trusted. The atomic facilities were cut off from the rest of the world in remote locations with Bob wire and machine guns with numerous NKGB informants who were always scanning for enemy spies. The scientists were aware, though, that the failure to produce the bomb could cost them their lives and that of their families. Beria had selected understudies for many of the top scientists to take over if necessary, although many of the scientists were ideologically motivated to build the bomb. Many felt that they were responding to the American threat and only trying to defend their way of life. Although, unlike the scientists in the Manhattan Project, conversation around the morality of the bomb was not up for discussion. Even voicing such ideas might land you in the uranium mines somewhere in the Urals. Beria did not involve himself in the scientific or technical decisions. His role was to ensure that the project received all the resources it needed. He also put pressure on those managing the project to build the bomb as quickly as possible. He visited various institutes and plants issuing threats and building a working atmosphere of fear. Beria, although he created an atmosphere of fear, never arrested anyone of scientific importance. He understood the value of these people and that they couldn't be replaced like mere laborers. Nevertheless, he did everything in his power to create the impression that he would have no qualms about sending any scientist and his family away to the darkest mines of the Gulag. One of the biggest challenges facing the, still facing the Soviet Union was lack of uranium. Only one kilogram had been produced by August 1945, far short of the 100 metric tons needed. The uranium confiscated in Germany and Czechoslovakia at the end of the war was useful, but far short of the total required. Soviet geologists had not studied the existing deposits very intensely, and they had no clear idea what other deposits might exist in the large tracts of the Soviet Empire. Uranium mining had not yet been organized on an industrial, let alone Stalinist, level. 
Urgent measures were now required, and in 1945, a commission was sent to Central Asia to explore for uranium deposits. This led to the discovery of several significant new reserves. By the end of 1948, new uranium mines had been constructed in the Ukraine, Estonia, near Leningrad, the Caucasus, eastern Siberia, and the Urals. The construction in many of these places, especially Siberia, was extremely difficult. The locations were extremely remote with no roads or connections to the outside world. It was, however, the mines in Czechoslovakia and East Germany that provided most of the uranium in the early years. The ore was leached with a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acid to produce a pure uranium salt, which was then sent to a uranium plant outside of Moscow for conversion into metal. In the late 1940s, another plant using a similar method came online in Ukraine. Production of uranium metal was not easy either. The production process was complex and consisted of purification, reduction, and smelting before the uranium was ready for use. There are again no figures available for Soviet uranium output during these years. However, the CIA and Western analysts figured that Eastern European and Soviet mines produced some, somewhere between 70 to 110 tons of uranium in 1946 and 47. It wasn't until uh, 1948 that most of the mines came online in the Soviet Union and production significantly increased. The next step was the construction of a nuclear reactor to produce plutonium. The experimental reactor at Laboratory No. 2 had been plagued by a lack of graphite and uranium, but by August 1945, Stalin's new urgency made the graphite available. By 1946, a significant amount of uranium began to arrive as well. By June of 1946, a special building had been erected on the grounds of Laboratory No. 2 to house the reactor. The, there was a laboratory protected from radiation by reinforced concrete, walls, and a thick layer of dirt and sand. The entrance of the reactor was a labyrinth of lead blocks. Uh, decimeters were placed around the building to measure the level of radiation, and sirens and lights were installed on the building to warn if the level became dangerous. The reactor was controlled by three cadmium rods that could be raised and lowered into the reactor to prevent a chain reaction and explosion from happening. Cadmium is a strong absorber of neutrons. At 6 o'clock, or 1800 hours, on December the 25th, the reactor went critical with Kutrykov at the controls in the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction taking place in the Soviet Union and in Europe. Several days later, Beria came to the lab for a special demonstration of the reactor. With Kutrykov at the controls, the reactor started to click until the sound became a continuous wail. The scientists looked on in amazement while Beria turned to them and asked, Is that all? Obviously not impressed, Beria could not be sure if the scientists had truly made a breakthrough or they were just conning him. In the end, the reactor at Laboratory No. 2 was an almost exact copy of Fermi's reactor from Chicago University from December 1942. With the experimental reactor built, a plutonium production reactor was built in the Urals. This plant would house larger reactors and produce the necessary plutonium for the bomb. The site was isolated and roads had to be built to the location even before construction began. Kutrykov and his team moved to the area in early 1948 to oversee the assembly of the reactor. In July 1948, the reactor came online and the plant began to produce plutonium. The first cases of radiation sickness started to appear by early 1949. Soon after, one of the doctors wrote to Beria warning that the managers had underestimated the dangers of radiation and additional measures were taken to protect the workers against radiation. 
Despite these warnings, with the immense pressure to complete the bomb, Soviet atomic workers were willing to expose themselves to high levels of radiation. With a supply of plutonium established, production of the actual bomb now began. A new facility was constructed east of Moscow. The basic idea for the plutonium bomb was to squeeze or implode a subcritical mass of plutonium, thereby increasing its density and making it subcritical. This was done by surrounding a sphere of plutonium with high explosives to produce a shockwave that would travel inwards and compress the plutonium, which begins the chain reaction. The challenge with this is that all the high explosives had to be detonated in less than a microsecond. The best detonating caps in the Soviet army could not meet this requirement, and extensive work had to be done for more than a year to solve the problem. By the summer of 1949, the bomb was ready and a testing location chosen on the steppes of Kazakhstan. Khrushchev uh, not only wanted to see if the bomb would work, but wanted to measure its effects. So makeshift villages were built in the blast area with brick and wooden buildings. Railway locomotives, tanks, and artillery were spread throughout the area as well. In addition to animals uh, were placed throughout the villages. High-speed cameras and instruments were placed into the grounds to measure the shock wave and radiation levels. Uh, two observation posts were built, one 15 kilometers north of the blast and another the same distance south, uh, one for the army and one for the scientists. Everyone assembled and Khrushchev gave the order and the bomb detonated. The whole area was lit for a few moments with an intense white light and then they were hit by a massive shock wave. Everyone ran out of the bunker and began to shake hands, hug, and congratulate each other as they watched the mushroom cloud rise in the distance. Honors were granted to all the leading scientists on the project, along with large sums of money and free cars, with some senior scientists even receiving free vacation homes. Their children received free education at the estate's expense, and they, along with their wives, were granted free passage to anywhere in the the Soviet Union for the rest of their lives. Three and a half weeks later, American planes picked up radiation samples in the upper atmosphere, which could only mean one thing. On September the 23rd, Truman announced to the country that the Soviets had developed the atomic bomb. The Soviets had intended to keep the test a secret for as long as possible, not wishing to alert the Americans, hoping to build up their nuclear stockpile as much as possible. They knew that once the Americans found out, it would create an atomic arms race. It's important to note that neither Stalin nor Truman viewed these weapons as a danger to humanity, as they would become later during the Cold War. For Stalin, the the danger wasn't the atomic bomb as such, but the American monopoly of the bomb. In conclusion, it's true that the Soviet Union had a great deal of information about the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project, but the Soviets were still able to achieve a very challenging technological and industrial problem. The Soviets had to create an entire industry with minimal resources in a war-ravaged country. Despite this, the Soviets built the bomb in about the same length of time as the Americans. This technological achievement, coupled with the fall of China to communism, fundamentally shifted the balance of the Cold War. It wiped away the Allied victory in Berlin and put the Soviet Union on equal footing with the United States technologically and essentially weakened the U.S. military position without firing a single shot. Gone were the days of, the, of, of atomic diplomacy. The United States would be forced to deal with the Soviet Union as an equal superpower. This also heated up the Cold War even more as the United States would redouble its efforts in the Cold War. This project came at immense cost, though, in terms of money, resources, lives, and ecological damage. 
It goes without saying that the Soviet people could have benefited much more if the resources and money invested in the atomic bomb would have been invested into rebuilding the country or stemming the famine of 1946-1947. The ecological damage of the project was also devastating. Between 1948 and 1951, 76 million cubic meters of high radioactive waste was produced at the Soviet plutonium production reactor. Most of this waste was sent downriver. It soon became apparent that people who lived along the river were suffering from exposure. 124,000 people had been exposed to radiation without warning. Tens of thousands had to be evacuated and other communities had to be supplied with water from new sources. Moreover, given the nature of the Stalinist system, people had no way of protesting what was happening to their communities. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 17. Check out our next episode on December the 15th, where we will be examining the Cambridge Five. We will be examining their origins and look at the damage they caused the West in the early Cold War. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let us let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but still want to help, give us a positive review in iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated. And if you have a moment, fill out our survey there so you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.